This is The Rest is PR with Lyle Fulton and Jackie Balls. Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to The Rest is PR. My name, as it will always be, barring any incident at all, is Lyle Fulton, and I'm joined, as I know, deep down in my soul, I always will be, by the absolutely wonderful Jackie Voice. I'm making it my mission now with these intros to kind of try and catch Jackie a bit off guard with how I introduce her. Uh, but first things first, Jackie, how are you this fine Thursday afternoon? We're back. We're back on Thursday afternoons where I believe we truly belong. It's great to be back here on, on a Thursday afternoon. How are you doing? How has your week been? I believe your week's been pretty good. Can you tell us a bit yeah, about how your week's been? Great. I had a great week because um, I, I, I took a couple of days in Florence. I've just come back from Florence. I flew back last night and uh yeah just it was just wonderful lots of walking lots of art and culture and pasta and <laughs> and i did a pasta making class in florence which i really go. really enjoyed so now i can um indulge my fatty addictions <laughs> e elegantly put as ever elegantly put could, could not have said it better myself although I wouldn't dare I wouldn't dream of putting it like that as a as, as a secondary no but brilliant I mean I listeners avid listeners to the podcast will know that I perennially make fun of the fact that I never get to go on away days with the Mozo. And actually this wasn't even an away day. This was just a holiday. So I was just very jealously yeah. receiving. Well we did Barcelona last week, me and Billy did Barcelona last week and did games for him there. And then sort of within a moment, I was back on another plane back out to, to Florence. And yeah, so it was, it was lovely. And listeners over the weekend, my two cents worth is I went to the Barcelona of the greater West London area, Burnham. So there you go. That's my contribution to where I went over the last 10 days, Barcelona, Florence. Florence. No, I was just kind of doing some, research for potentially moving somewhere but that's a hey that's a different that's a different thing that's a different thing altogether this this podcast isn't about me this podcast listeners in fact we're delighted this podcast oh here we go here's a good segue here's a great segue this podcast <laughs> is about our fantastic guest and we are delighted to welcome this person on the podcast it's the absolutely fantastic Catherine Chan we're going to go with Kat Chan as well because we had a little bit of a to do not a to do we had a little bit of a kind of a brief before we went live and we're going to go with cat for the remainder of the episode because cat is how Catherine goes by now but i always embarrass our guest cat with like a little bit of an introduction before we get going on the podcast proper take about... a drink he'll be off take a one. drink because i'm gonna go I, I, right I've, I've embarrassed myself so much in, my, in life I, <laughs> i'm at my bar of your ability to embarrass me <laughs> this is i mean this is i mean the, the, the way i embarrass guests it's, I think, in, in a really nice way, because it's just basically rattling off the incredible achievements our guests have you know, achieved over the course of their career, over the course of their professional lives. And strap in, listeners, I know I always say this, but when I was putting together the briefing document, which Jackie has obviously read, as she always does, for this episode, <laughs> I, I couldn't believe it. I genuinely couldn't believe how much Kat has done in her career. So strap in, listeners, here we go. So Kat is currently the Senior Vice President of Global Communications at Hurtigruten Expeditions, which is a sustainable expedition travel company which specialises in taking mindful and curious adventurers to the farthest corners of the world. But this is where, I mean, and which is extraordinary, and I'm really, really excited to talk to Kat about that. But this is where, I mean, my kind of gaming nerd came out because Catherine, <laughs> Kat has worked as the Head of International Communications and the Vice President of Global Corporate Communications at, wait for it, EA. Now, I said before we went live, if I'm not playing an EA game, it's arguable I'm not breathing fresh oxygen. I'm a FIFA <laughs> fanatic. So the fact that 
cat held to such well, prestigious it's not position. Anymore, is it? It's not well now. It's FC twenty four, of course. Now it's EAFC twenty four, of course. Yeah, well caught out. But yeah, there you go. Here I am claiming to be such an expert, and it's no longer fever. So yeah, well caught, <laughs> Jackie. Uh, she was also the director of international integrated communications at Warner Bros. I mean, another obviously small company where she headed up the international public relations community and social media teams and oversaw the regional press, social and influence operations of what is, I mean, such an enormous company. It's a massive, massive company still, Warner Brothers. Her reputation within the games industry is just outstanding. Listeners, She's worked for the likes of Take-Two, Interactive, Blizzard Entertainment and the Eurogamer Network. And she's also done some fantastic work with GamesAid over the years which is an absolutely fantastic organization, which we're keen to talk to Kat more about on this episode as well. And breathe. There we go. And I'll breathe now. I mean, just a sheer and I'm also volume. a personal fangirl of Kat as well. So this is a great episode Massive. for me. Massive. There you yeah. go. I can ask her lots and lots of questions. So uh, <laughs> now to a suitably embarrassed Kat, how are you this fine Thursday afternoon? Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Welcome. How are you doing? I'm not embarrassed. I just feel very tired and old hearing it. <laughs> uh, and I was good. Uh, but, uh, yeah, just get back to, to Jackie. How was Jackie's week? I've now got Florentine uh, Envy. It's a beautiful, oh. beautiful city. I, I, you know, I was like, oh, you know, I'm happy. It's sunny down here in Brighton where I am. But uh, Florence, ah, mm. What a city! It's amazing. Oh, gorgeous! Uh, it's amazing, and it's. Did so you go to the uh, the taxidermy museum? No, but that's one on the list. Um, for because I want to keep going back to Florence. It's one of my favourite cities in Italy. It's just it's just one of those places where you've got. I was taking James for the first time, so I had to take him to the Uffizi and the Academia to see a, a bit more of Michael Angelo's works and the glorious David, and then you know there was just everything that's. Caravaggio and and just I was just you know if you if you're into art it's a place to go for sure but taxidermy I'm really into because you're in Brighton have you been to the Booth Museum no Uh uh-huh I'm not sure if it's still open I'm pretty sure it is so the Booth Museum um has lots of taxidermy in it and my mother who is a sculptress used to go and take bits out of the booth museum they used to lend them to her so that she could use them for her sculptures so every now and again I'd walk into our our dining room and find a badger or a fox that had been stuffed in (laughs) so yeah I do like a bit of taxidermy I love a bit of taxidermy and I'm I'm gonna google the booth museum as soon as I'm off this I am I I got married with a taxidermied lovebird attached to my head um, ah. well, back to but um but uh or we, we can talk i mean that's probably a whole other discussion about florence and amazing things but um, we're getting a bit of a window listeners aren't we into <laughs> what my part in this particular recording is going to be insofar as i i, I feel i i may be a, a very interested and very engaged bystander in some <laughs> conversations about taxidermy and museums i mean I, I for one have never been to florence i'm very very jealous of the fact that you went i'm gonna have to go now i have been to brian i went for jackie's wedding most recently Jackie got married in Brighton so there you go Um, I I don't believe it's it's hazy although I wasn't drinking at the time it's hazy but I don't believe you had a bird on your head but but I mean I I, I could no no Uh, uh, do you know what I on the subject of taxidermy I'm going completely off piece here but I always wanted to stuff my dog when he died and everybody thought I was completely no <laughs> I think you did say when he died I think if you just said stuff your dog that would have been nice thank goodness you clarified when he died thank goodness you clarified that 
I mean, goodness me. I really stopped me doing it. And it's one of my biggest regrets. I think it would have been a really lovely thing to still have my Norbert with me as a, a nice stuffed dog. But everybody just thought I was completely bananas and just didn't let me do it. So I think you're getting counsel from the wrong people, Jackie. That's it. I would have wholeheartedly said yes. Tell me you weren't hosting a podcast at that time without telling me you weren't hosting a podcast at that time. Because I think if you were hosting a podcast at that time, we would have all said, just do it. Absolutely go for it. Yeah, yeah. I think that's yeah. right. I think I'm, I'm I'm probably, it's probably a little bit less out there than it seemed to be at the time. But um, anyway, he's now, his ashes are now still underneath the television where he always slept. <laughs> so waiting for me to join him when uh, when when my time has come. Well, Honestly. listeners, thank you so much for joining us on the Rest is PR. It's been a brilliant episode about taxidermy. Uh, and uh, if you too are interested in coming on the podcast and talking to us about taxidermy or, or any other type of museum. No, I, I don't want to make you feel like you've lost control of the conversation entirely, Lyle. But j- just one last point on that, Jackie. There is an amazing person uh, uh, called um, Jess who does Roadkill Couture. Um, and she takes she she got this beautiful barn owl that died of entirely natural causes by the side of the road, and again made a wonderful hat out of them for a friend's wedding. Um, she does beautiful things, uh, amazing rabbit mittens. You should should check her out next time you're in Brighton. I really will. I really will. That sounds amazing. Uh, there we go. We need to put her at the bottom of this podcast. I was going to say, and we will link all of these. <laughs> at the end of the episode in the episode description i mean this is brilliant. i'm absolutely loving this and this again is just the magic of podcasting because we could i comfortably believe we could continue <laughs> to talk about this but cat obviously you're on the podcast because we want to talk to you a little bit about yourself about your career first things first can you just sort of just tell us how you got into the area of communications how you came to work in the gaming industry specifically as well and sort of what sort of sparked your interest in this industry in this area of, of um of work really yeah, absolutely. So I grew up in Bath and uh, in my sort of latter school years before I was supposed to go to university, there was a video game shop in Bath that sold secondhand stuff that um, was advertising for a Saturday assistant. And uh, one of the critical things about this shop was that the woman behind the counter seemed to be chain smoking, drinking lots of booze and not doing much work. So I applied for the job and got it, which was fantastic. So that was my first career entry into video games was um, uh, through a secondhand shop. But the secondhand shop that happened to be in Bath was also the home of Future Publishing. Uh, and so the consistent flow of journalists selling secondhand games to said computer game shop meant that I, I kind of quickly established a network in games media. And so when they were looking for someone who wasn't a white middle-class man to write about video games uh, about 20 odd, 30 years ago, they knocked at my door. So I got a job at Future Publishing and from there kind of moved into journalism, moved into telly. Uh, that was all great fun, but terribly paid. What was your first magazine at Future? Uh, official PlayStation. That was a great magazine. It was fab. It was fab. Uh, under I love that Mike, magazine. I love it. Mike Goldsmith, who, in fact, a phenomenal editorial team. Mike Goldsmith, Steve Pierce was the, um, the deathbed. They were just fab. But Mike was responsible for putting in a column called Cat Call, which is why I'm, I'm Cat. And Cat Channel, that's, that's, that's where you got the name, and that's where I stayed there. But yeah, so started in in uh, in journalism, and then I remember being on a an amazing press trip to Japan for I think Tenchu something with Activision, and I just remember sitting with the PR person and thinking about how lovely it would be able to afford your own long haul flight where you didn't have to sit next to um, a PR person trying to sell you whatever it was for forty thousand. <laughs> um, as much as you wanted to hear about their next game and their their terrible marriage. Um, I was like, if only I can afford my own flight. So I moved into PR because the pay's much better. 
and and the rest is history, I guess. Does it? Do you think the PR pays better than journalism? Oh my god! Yeah, like like <laughs> Jesus. I think I think my opening salary. I think I can divulge it now. Back then was like seven and a half grand. Like the only tips tips writing was the only way you could actually live on a wage. I was on eight. That was my starting salary. Yeah, so <laughs> it's, it's just shocking. But yeah, it was really, really badly paid. And, and yeah, like, well, PR people, they had they had company credit cards and, you know, they were doing great, snazzy things. Where, and they got to eat. They got yes. to eat at nice places and drink at nice places. That was the that was the thing that, that first attracted me to PR, <laughs> was the fact that Lee Richards, um, who's sadly yeah. parted now, but Lee was my first PR that I, when I was working at a software company, and he just took journalists to the Lanesboro all the time. And I thought, wow, what a job. And so when I left that software company, I decided to just go and take journalists to the Lanesboro. That's what I thought PR was all about. There's definitely a scene, isn't there? Is. Yeah, there's definitely a scene. Like my when my dad used to tell me, sort of as I sort of got progressively older, as we all do, um, my dad was saying me that like there was kind of a bit of a I mean, Jackie, you've also kind of, you know, intimated this as well. There was kind of a scene when it came to PRs the obviously there was also kind of a journalistic scene but it was a bit more kind of like they were doing their own thing and prs you're so right like that was kind of the lifestyle that was the way of living wasn't it It was like lunches and sort of all this sort of thing i mean taught me through then cat the kind of jump from obviously so journalistic career into pr a lot of what you do now is on a global scale which is something i'm really interested to talk to you about i mean what was the jump then what was the trajectory from obviously getting into pr and becoming a pr professional into kind of working in a global context and, and how was that transition for you? I think it, it started, so I, my first role was a European role and what that did was set a precedent for working with different regional needs, localization, cultural nuance, different types of media that have really, really, you know, often very opposing approaches to what you can and can't discuss or what you will and won't do or, or how, uh, let's say, valuable or friendly they are to your commercial objectives. So I think that first role got me working in in multi-region and then also got me working with like agency networks where you've got, you know, lots of different partners in different countries, or you might have distribution networks that have got in-house people. So it set a precedent for thinking about more than one language or one culture or one, one country. And so, and then in my international kind of European grew into international and international in most companies means everywhere apart from the Americas or North America. And so then just adding in one more region, North America is is basically global. So it's not that different. So I think once you have that muscle of working with different partners and understanding different needs and recognizing that they need different types of support or um, different types of storytelling or different channel priorities or audience priorities, it's not that tough to move across. It's a lot of man management, isn't it, really? If you're handling, because I've only ever really sort of work with an international network of agencies that's my own and that I know but in an international role when you're managing lots and lots of agencies there must be a lot of different characters to handle and lots of different yeah I think I think I think they're often quite familiar right I mean you you'll know Jackie ours is a relatively small industry and so over you know a number of years you get to know similar partners and I think you find people that are a good cultural fit. So are used to working collaboratively with other um, agencies? I think, you know, it, probably the biggest 
network and the biggest team would have been at EA, but I joined EA as a team of one. You know, the, the international comms department was just me. Right. I think there's now sort of 60, 70 of them, plus a big corporate agency that's global, plus, you know, all the regional agency supporters, uh, networks that are moving in. So it is a lot of people, but I think with time, um, particularly being in a single industry, you can find the right cultural fit from people to know how you want to work together and how everyone has to play nice in the same space and there's no room for ego or, or ownership of a single idea if it's a great idea that comes from France but actually it's going to work for everybody globally we're going to share it globally because that's how we think so I think there's um there's that there's a lot of paperwork and procurement that's always a bit dull that's probably but the people bit increasingly less men which is great or more multi-gendered but yeah I think once you weed out the ego which yeah easily in small it's not too bad so Sounds to me like you sort of built this really layered approach, you know, and grew as the company grew and everything else. What do you think was the biggest the biggest challenge that you faced within that growth when you sort of, you know, personally having to manage something that is quite a wieldy challenge? Challenge? Yeah, I think, challenge. yeah, I think I think it's probably in those scenarios because I've built a few different teams and it tends to be proof of concept. And, you know, it's one of those things that if you don't have comms often you don't know what you're missing or if you don't have strategic comms you don't really understand how comms can you know fundamentally impact a a business's ability to grow or deliver and so you almost have to do the proof of concept bit and when you're just one person or one agency or a small group proving that out probably means there's a period of stretch where you go you're either like super uh, creative about your use of agency resources and how you make them feel in house to be able to grow things or you're probably massively oversurfacing working really hard to go you really like this this is great doesn't this is great isn't it great having a comms person right you want more of these okay let's get another one isn't that one great okay you want more of those so it's it's kind of having to show and make people feel the benefit to be able to get the budget or the people or the agency resources that's probably the hardest bit and that's just a lot of hours a lot of creative thinking about budgets and resources but then again if you've got the right external partners the right agency people and you can bring them on board of that journey of like this is where I'm going this is what I'm trying to prove out this is what I'm trying to grow they can be indispensable and and I think the right agency partners in every job I've had have been critical like it just couldn't have been successful and not in a in a world where you think it's just about reputation management or coverage or selling games but just in fundamentally building structures and infrastructures and teams that are healthy and high functioning like that external is critical do you feel I mean this is something that I've struggled with my whole career is do you feel that PR and comms are taken as seriously at sea level as they should be I think it depends it really Mm. depends on the the experience of the executive so I've had executives at small companies, little operations that aren't necessarily doing that well, that really, you know, will will sort of override a comms decision and go, oh, no, well, I know, I know, I know better, I should be doing this. But then I've had massive global CEOs that wouldn't dream of opening their mouths without the input of a comms person giving them guidance, you know. So I think it really, but again, that's probably based on their lived experience of how much they've been able to see see comms has an impact and I think comms has an impact if you give it space to be able to do that if you have early partnership so I think that's down to the level of experience of the executive that you have and again it's that thing where 
if you can find the space to show them like, yeah the it can make then more often than not they'll get it but sometimes you don't get that chance because you're brought in right at the end of a process or or you know is it that Bridget Jones quotes someone who just organizes parties and fannies around with press releases like there's <laughs> definitely still a whole bunch of people that think that that's what comms is well that's what I was going to ask actually it's really really interesting because obviously actually I'm really pleased you mentioned this idea of proof of concept and Jackie and I've spoken in the past on previous episodes of the podcast like there still does feel like there's this environment this landscape where PRs and comms professionals are having to prove themselves and yet you're going into an environment where as you quite rightly just pointed out if a company or an individual or an institution is like inclined to meet with you and discuss it they want to see something like tomorrow and actually that's kind of not how it works like you know if you're a journalist I can write you something tomorrow that's fine like if, if you go into journalist I can write you a piece today and and get it out there tomorrow but as a PR like you say it's about building these relationships I mean do you find that there's been a shift since you have developed a bit of a reputation in the industry because there's that trust there based on your previous experience obviously like there's the understanding from CEOs who've been there at the top level for a number of years that obviously a PR requires a certain amount of time for things to kind of prove themselves but do you also feel like you're given more time now than you were however many years ago because you've proved you have a body of work that shows that what you do is effective do you see what I mean possibly yeah but I think the challenge isn't necessarily about me as an individual it's about the function right so and I think you know probably in a similar position to you Jackie where we have the luxurious position of being able to be a bit picky about the people we work with and you know I can't imagine either of us would spend the time trying to convince somebody why they needed a PR um, when there's no shortage of people that already appreciate and understand the 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 work that we have and, and so we're not we're not convincing them I think from a functional perspective I think in the new landscape, it's there are spaces where PR isn't necessarily as relevant where it was years ago. Mm. And I think what does us as a disservice is I do still see some people pushing traditional media and traditional PR where it's going to have no impact on business objectives or commercial goals. Like, so you can get a bunch of coverage that feels good. It's like, oh, yeah, look, look at this Excel sheet. It's amazing aren't I great but it will do nothing the return on investment is 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 brushing your ego and that frustrates the life out of me it just literally last week I participated in an RFP process for a company that I I know some individuals there and I really like them and I'd love to work with them and I very rarely get involved in an RFP but I wanted to in this one but and And then I saw an excellent briefing that they wanted to see stats-based KPIs. They wanted to see evidence of that. And I'm like, yeah, I can can run you off an Excel spreadsheet showing reach of millions. But as a case study, I don't really like to look at case studies that way. I like to look at case studies in terms of achieving KPIs that have moved the needle for a company based on the original objectives. So in in which case, it doesn't really serve you showing the value of PR if you're just going to say, I got a reach of 20 million. I can get a reach of 20 million by buying that reach. You know, that isn't what PR is all about. That frustrates me. And the second thing that frustrates me is that PR, I think, and communications as a whole have really changed because of all of the technology that we have at our of our fingertips. 
So now it's much more, I think, of a dialogue than a broadcast. You know, when I started off, we would sort of try to get our stuff into the Times or the FT or the Wall Street Journal. And now it's like more listening to what our kind of users, consumers, players, whatever that end public is, more listening to what they're saying and how how we shape our comms to sort of match that which is why I kind of asked about the sort of the take up of comms as a really valuable resource at sea level because I feel like communications now is it's becoming much more important to shaping a, a company's outreach and and their product even I completely agree and I think I think there are metrics that are helpful you know when I look at so for instance in my current role, we use a small subset. We have identified who, who are the media that actually matter just to us for this particular year's business objectives. And we look at that small set and we use a percentage me- benchmark within that. And then we look at the penetration of key messages within headlines, right? Like, it's like, uh, is it actually the people we need to tell the story that are telling the story? Because we know they do have an impact on the audience we want to reach. And are they telling the story in a way that we are dictating or we are driving? Like, I think they're interesting. But to your point about, like tying it back to original objectives. And when I think it's easier when you get into the corporate space, right? Because obviously often the audience is much smaller. It might be a small group of investors. It might be a small group of politicians. And um, Jackie, you and I had a great conversation the other day chewing the cud about channels like LinkedIn, where it's like, okay, if I know that five people in Westminster are actually making a policy decision around a business that's affecting, you know, around a piece of policy that's affecting a business I'm working on, I'm going to go and find those five people, look at what they're consuming, look at the, the voices they're sharing and go, right, okay, you care about Jane Doe from The Times and you're retweeting, um, whatever it's called these days. You know, so I, I can go, I can reverse engineer because yeah. you are the stakeholder. So I think they, those are much more, that's easier in the corporate space because the audience is smaller. But I think maybe also those are easier concepts for executives to get on board with. Okay, like this is a very real, acute reputational challenge, policy challenge, revenue risk, whatever it is, or or often legal risk. And these are the voices that are contributing to the problem or who can help solve the problem. And when you can lay things out like that and you can much easier draw a line between problem and solution and comms being a vehicle to that, I think it's easier to get people on board. But yeah, to your point about reach, I mean... There are still PR teams that look at AVE and I just don't, I don't understand it. For those who don't understand AVE, because we do get a different, different types of listeners, that's advertising um, equivalency rate. So it's basically saying if you've got a page of editorial, what would that be the equivalent rate to buy if you were going to buy an advert in that particular publication or on that website? And, but I honestly, Kat, I get asked for AVEs all the time. I just it drives me potty and I just think it's a very lazy way of trying to establish your worth really but I guess it's in the absence of anything else right like and it's easy for people to understand or easier for people to understand when you are not a functional expert yeah I mean that's that's going to always be our difficulty is establishing what a company's reputation what that reputational worth is that's going to be 
always immeasurable but i do think that you can start to as you just said just put specific kpis against messaging and whether those messages and you can sort of take benchmarks of when you start and when you finish but i do think especially when you're working with companies starting to make an impact you can start to see how they sort of shape their even their products and and their company according to the feedback that they they're getting because now we have much more opportunity to test our messages with our audience groups whether they're big or small so you know now we have discord for example and we have the examples of prs working very closely with community managers and seeing if the kind of things we're saying are actually really matching up against what our players or what our consumers are thinking of of our products so is that you know how have you seen that sort of change over time you know you go from the old days of future publishing on a playstation and magazine all the way through to to you know working with fifa when it was fifa at ea have you seen that sort of massive change in media and impact happen over time Oh, hugely. I think, you know, particularly when you look at, you know, back in the heydays of magazines when official PlayStation was selling more than FHM, it was like a half million copies a month or something like that. The sway and the way that editorial dictated the relationship with advertisers, like that just did a total 180. So that changed the influence of uh, editorial overpaid. I think also the, the growth of social media, you know, the growth of influencers, um, the growth of online PR. Like I remember when websites started and everyone's going, oh, you know, how are we going to deal with this? Oh, it went last. And like, the, I remember the like the online team at Future being like a bunch of super nerds. Nerds. I was, I was looking for <laughs> another word, you know, in the basement. And it's like, oh, they're just chucking out content. They won't mind. They won't be listening. I mean, yeah. if they are, then I'm um, sure they've gone on to great things. So it's all no, I know exactly where they are. They'll all still be in the same pub in Bath. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, like a huge shift. So I think the dynamics between publishers, developers, uh, and media has has really, really shifted. I think the ability to control a narrative has shifted. I think also the, you know, the things that influence sales, that influence the metrics that we use, you know, Metacritic still um lives as a kind of, you know, your day one correlates to your your kind of day one sales as to where you rank. And that's still something that is a constant pain for PR people. But I think, you know, what has changed is when you look at some of the most challenging cycles that some of the biggest players in our industry have seen, you know, in terms of impact, negative impact on share prices, they start on social media, right? And they are, but they are driven by traditional media. So I think Mm. it's a world where some people kind of go, oh, traditional media doesn't matter anymore. We can discard it or we can, that's not where we want to spend our money. It's like actually when you are in difficult situations or you have complex things you need to explain, you need to work with a professional journalist. You can't work with an influencer or it's very difficult to work with an influencer in the same way that you can with a journalist that has an understanding of a commercial relationship, even if they have an editorial boundary. So I think there have been shifts. And I think where I've seen it go wrong is where, people have decided to discard any one channel because they all have a place within a mix and what that leveling is totally changes depending on what your objective is and who your audience is but they all have a purpose but it shifts right yeah I've seen uh, we've talked about this and you know part of your your great level of experience involves crisis comms what would you say is is the biggest sort of crisis that you've had to deal with and and how did you how did you handle it i think the biggest ones 
nobody ever heard about. Yes. Which means I handled it really, really well. <laughs> um, and there's a whole world of NDAs that mean I can never talk about them. Um, <laughs> oh, I did. I, you know, the I guess in the early days of World of Warcraft, we started to see, you know, uh, loss of life around excessive mm-hmm. gaming, which was the beginning of that narrative. When I was at Take Two, there were lots of challenges around what, you know, games like Bully and GTA when they were coming out. I think, you know, when you get to brands like Star Wars and Lego and Harry Potter, you know, anything that 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 happens around those kind of goes around a really, really big scale, has global reach. I think, you know, there are ongoing, I guess, uh, regulatory crisis that the industry has, has been through. You know, working at FIFA, there's a, a lot of discussion around, you know, excessive play and, and, um, and monetization. So I think there's lots of different ones. Most recently in my current role, you know, I have a really diverse set of crisis issues around ships that get stuck at sea and lose navigation or lose power, um, about the political unrest in Ecuador where we're operating, about what's happening in Senegal and how that affects, you know, our routes going in and out of Dakar, um, around issues facing (laughs) maritime unionization. All of these things, you know, about the effect of the grind in the Faroe Islands and mass whaling. You know, these were things that were not on my radar (laughs) when I was worrying about what Premier League footballer had kicked a cat a couple of years ago. Oh, wow. I mean, don't get me started on Premier League football because I know exactly who that is. And I I won't mention his name because friends of mine will also know and there are chants about him. I mean, what I would say, Kat, is like this is both a dream and a nightmare for me because the dream is that I have so many things to ask you about all these things and the nightmare is obviously like time but obviously we're going to keep going because I just want to ask you all these things but actually I was going to ask you I'm pleased you mentioned this I was going to ask you a little bit about a shift I think Jackie and I have said this before on episodes of the podcast it's amazing how important communications becomes and how important communication as a term becomes when things start to go wrong like if things are going well, then no amount of advice you can give someone, you know, you've said that you occasionally work with smaller organizations who said, no, no, don't worry, I'm just going to do it this way. And then when something goes wrong, it's like, oh, hang on, how, how do I communicate this to X, Y, and Z? And I want to point to, I mentioned it in the document I sent across to you, I want to point to something that the brilliant James Batchelor of gamesindustry.biz pointed to recently, which was your advice that was written up in gamesindustry.biz about communication through change internally. Because obviously the last 18 months has seen quite a tumultuous set of events occur within the gaming industry you've had this sort of microsoft activision we've had microsoft lay people off i mean i suppose how important is it that you know there is now a shift where people are starting to realize that not only is communications important when it comes to the business side and moving the business forward but actually if you have communications professionals and you have a team internally to deal with these changes and manage the human impact of these events i mean just can can you sort of you know articulate how important it is that there has been a bit of a shift in that in recent years as well and that's being considered more important by businesses as well i I think it's fantastic that it's considered more important because um a world where you can treat people poorly through change and get away with it is much less prevalent than it was i think that still happens and i think companies still do but it is much harder for them to do it i think there isn't as much of an understanding as I'd like there to be or as much investment in really, really strong and strategic communications around change internally to be able to control an external narrative. Because I think people don't necessarily appreciate what functional expertise can bring to that and what a good strategy, a solid plan, but just how much difference it can make both to impacted individuals, but to, you know, there's those that are going 
and the human impact of that. There's those that are staying and have remainers guilt and the human impact of that. There's the commercial challenges. If you're making layoffs, maybe you're in a difficult um, or a distressful financial situation. How quickly and how important it is to get your workforce back on board and alive, to get them on board with the decisions you've made for, for them to feel confident that even though you've gone through a difficult period, that you are still capable and competent of leading a company. Like all of those things, you know, have really really big impact and i've seen comms like i've I've delivered comms which have been very difficult entirely negative narratives that have generated positive headlines because the communications have been managed well and where there has been even with studio closures hundreds of people going there's been no leakage through social media because every single employee felt that they had, they understood why, what was happening to them, what was happening, that had been thoughtful, that had been compassionate, that had been kind, that had been consistent. So none of them were taking to social to go, why has this happened? Or this is terrible. Because the work was done on the front end with legal and with HR to really think about how it would land and to think about it from their perspective. What are the things they need to hear? What are the questions they have? And to get ahead of it and to answer and to really own the narrative and there were no and no gaps inside or out because you are consistent and you are clear. You've got no management adding an extra layer of, oh, well, this is where I think well, I'll deliver it in my own terms. Or I think it's helpful for these people to know more than I'm supposed to tell them. You know, comms can have such a huge impact. But I don't think that's fully understood or appreciated because often when comms is great, to our point about crisis, you don't see it. Like, yeah. it's, it's what it's what doesn't it. in the headlines. Yeah. You'd necessarily yeah. see maybe the numbers as a news story you'd necessarily see x number of layoffs because it's a pertinent news story from a statistical perspective but as you rightly point out you then if it's done well and executed properly you wouldn't then hear the kind of more superficial is the wrong word but you wouldn't then hear the kind of the opinions flying out and sort of stories breaking like that because it's been dealt with properly and everyone felt valued leaving now i just I, I thought i just wanted to bring it up but there wasn't even really typical me unprofessional podcast so there wasn't even really a proper question there i just i just really liked the piece that was written up um about it i i, I pointed to it yeah it was really really good. no i'm grateful to you asking i feel really really strongly about it because i've been really successful at making a lot of people a lot of money that's not gonna keep me warm at night no. um, thinking that i did a good job for people when it really, really mattered means that um, my entire career selling video games hasn't been futile. I mean, it's interesting, the examples that you've given, Kat, because when I've been involved in that awful process, which is, it's it's actually a very, it takes its toll on you as a communicator as well, because you've, you've got that guilt too, because you're the one that's kind of responsible for delivering the bad news and you really do feel like the messenger and sometimes you want to be shot because you're feeling so bad. But... I found that that's generally worked within companies who have embraced internal communications as important in the first place. So you have a you have a platform to build on. I think when it comes later down the line or as an afterthought, oh, hey, we're going to have to make all these changes. and We're suddenly going to have to over communicate. That's the time it becomes very difficult for the person in charge of comms to implement a really good way of delivering awful messages and I'm so glad that you're passionate about it because it's something that I'm constantly trying to sort of within this podcast emphasize that when you're even at the smallest company can have its own value set and communicate that value set constantly and it doesn't have to be a difficult thing to do 
when you're going into these new, because now you've come through an amazing career and now you're in the position where you're coming into companies as a a non-executive director, as a consultant, as an advisor. Where do you start with them in terms of creating an infrastructure? And is that one of the things that you pop in as part of it? Yeah, I think one of the the most common mistakes, for want of a better term, about kind of employee communications generally is that most leaders have a really good view on what they want to say, why they want to say it and when, but don't think for a second about the employee need states, like what, what, what do I need? And generally they're sort of defined by what do I need to get my job done? Like how do I connect to the right people, get the right tools, find the stationary cupboard? Uh, how do I connect with the community? You know, how do I find my gang, the people who love cat memes or whatever it is? Um, and then how do I connect to leadership? How do I actually buy into where we're all going? And, and how do I see myself in the part of that? And I think getting that across the line as a premise of like, hang on a minute, like you, you need to think about what your employees need rather than what you want to broadcast them is important. And then, yeah, you're absolutely right about channels. If you've already established the vehicles that you're using to kind of go, okay, every Tuesday we have a team meeting and that's where we hear the big company money news and that's always going to be what happens. Getting those in place so that when you do pull in an all-team meter and all-company meeting, it's like, oh, my God, we've got our first ever global town hall. We're all getting fired. Like, you know, that's yeah. like to try and start <laughs> doing that then is, is yeah, is not yeah. ideal. That oh. unbelievable honestly i mean right first things first we're gonna have to have you back on because like there is so much that still i need to talk to you no we're not finishing up just yet i have one final question we're not finishing <laughs> up already it's absolutely flown by i have so many things i think i've become a fan as well i mean not that i wasn't before but i'm now officially a fan we're gonna have to get you back on if you have us if you, there you go if if you will come back on we would absolutely love to have you back on Kat, because there are so many things still to, to talk to you about but the final thing just before we bring this episode to a close is we mentioned right at the top of the episode your work with games aid yes and i was actually really taken by the fact that you've obviously had an outstanding career where you've like achieved so much with all the organizations and the companies you work for but actually you point to things that you're very very proud of you know throughout your career as, as the things that kind of like make sure that you can sleep and all this sort of stuff I imagine games aid is something you're very very proud of can you tell us a little bit about the work you've done with games aid throughout your career and, and the work you're continuing to do if you wouldn't mind yeah no absolutely so for those of you who aren't aware games aid is our, our industry charity it effectively um functions as um, an umbrella fundraising organization for lots of different charities that are uk-based um youth-based and have operating costs in less than 30 percent and anyone in the industry can nominate a charity to receive funds from games aid basically it just gathers all the cash anyone who works in games can say i think this is a great cause if it meets the criteria then they can apply for funding and hopefully you're one of the charities that receives it there are lots of different charities that we have as familiar faces in our industry that games they supported special effect is probably the most common way you know special effect was a huge recipient of funds from games aid before it was then in a position to be able to appoint its its own fundraiser so it's been a really good starting platform for things that are fantastic for the industry and it has a one of the challenges with Games Aid is that because of its structure, it has no, I guess it has a rotating series of kind of boards and chairs and trustees because we never wanted to be in a situation which we were previously with our industry charity where there was just kind of a bunch of the old school guys running it and um, you know, all heading towards an OBE or whatever it was they were clamoring rather than thinking about the <laughs> So the idea is lots of new faces come in and uh, have a, a voice and take a leadership role in Games Aid, which works most of the time. And we have some great people, but it is reliant on new people coming in, knowing what Games Aid is, getting on board. 
And because they don't have a paid fundraiser, uh, like many of our other organisations or charities in the industry, they're reliant on people just leaning in. And so I've absolutely loved the work I've done. Some of my amazing industry peers um, have supported it. Ian Livingston, Andy Payne, Caroline Miller, Rosemary Dalton over the years. Sarah Seabee was one of the, the, the founders, along with Rupert Lomi from Eurogamer. So they've had lots of people coming through it. George Osborne and Christine do a great job with it now, but um, it needs more people to support it and keep it going. Not just through fundraising, but also in terms of like actually talking about what the industry does and what the charity does to support lots of other organisations that otherwise would be totally stuffed were it not for Games Aid money. Unbelievable. What a fantastic, fantastic, like, sort of cause as well. Brilliant. I was doing some research on it actually just now, and it looks like a fantastic organisation, and we did promise we would sort of touch on it as well. So we'll definitely link all sorts of information to do with Games Aid. We haven't really alluded to any of your, your, your personal endeavours on fundraising. Yeah and stuff like that i mean you really are an action woman aren't you Kat? i think this is because cat promised that if we did ask she would then sort of you know <laughs> like i mean we, we, we thought we'd embarrassed her before uh go before we finish cat like yeah i mean could you sort of explain sort of the personal sort of like you know involvement you've had over the last few years as well because yeah I think uh yeah so i guess and i think when we're talking about things bits of work that we're we're proud of right i i, I have the proud uh position of being games Day's biggest individual fundraiser i did lots of things uh so there's the annual Gamescom to Brighton bike ride, which I started out as, um, well, I was originally doing it on my own. And then a lovely man called Nathan Irvine agreed to come with me. And we laminated a, an A4 map of Europe and drew a line across it and then cycled home. Turns out that was a bit of a fail. But anyway, that's a whole other story. But yeah, so it started the Gamescom bike ride, did a couple of swims to Africa. I'm going for my second attempt at uh, the English Channel this year. A few ultra marathons, baked a lot of cakes. Sat in a, a, a van with a guy called James Binns, for those of you in video games, who was a super and people paid me more money by about the fifth year of the bike ride to sit in the van with Vinzy and listen to him ramble on about SEO than actually get on a bike and cycle back. To the <laughs> That's James, um, if you're listening, we'd love to have you on the podcast. I will, uh, I will send him. I'll send him this recording. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, yeah, um, I, I was wearing ear defenders by the end of it, and Vinzy was. <laughs> Tucking into all of the carbohydrates that were largely for cyclists, not him. But anyway, that's another story. But yeah, lots of um, lots of running around. It's the thing that keeps me sane uh, away from my desk. That's extraordinary. That's unbelievable. I mean, like, I, I in fairness, I've been looking up Games Aid and Jackie have been sort of saying, I think we asked Kat about her personal endeavours with Games Aid. I didn't actually fully anticipate. Hence, if you're watching on YouTube, my face when Kat went, I am actually <laughs> the largest individual fundraiser for this incredible organization. That is something to be extraordinarily proud of when when are you tackling the channel when when's that for do you know uh, third week of mind. june warm good call <laughs> no cold very cold, cold. It's cold? Still, yeah it's uh it's it's still cold in june hopefully above 16 degrees but okay. um yeah i'm uh i'm plowing through the cake to put on nature's neoprene to be able to um to to get there because otherwise it's just too chilly that is extraordinary honestly fantastic and i suppose actually what like when i said earlier on in this episode that we'd love to have you back on maybe we have you back on post your your attempt at the english channel we'd love to hear about that as well thank you so so much. i mean i feel like you know i feel inspired to go out and do similar things to go and fundraise for things it's like I don't running again i don't 
need that level of in incentive to, to, to put on that nature's theory. Listen, and we've come with, you know, like the come full circle to think, you know, but being a bystander now while Kat and Jackie discuss these things. Kat, honestly, thank you so, so much for, for coming on the podcast. We really appreciate having you on. And uh, we'd love to speak to you again in the future once you sort of attempted these things and, and to hear more about how your year's gone. Absolutely. It's been it's been an utter joy. Uh, oh. the company, I'll come back anytime. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kat. Honestly, it's been fantastic. Thank you so much. Listeners, a few quick T's and C's before we let you go for the latest episode of The Recipe R. As ever, if you want to get in touch with us, if you want to be a guest on the podcast like Kat has been today, or if you want to suggest a topic for Jackie and myself to discuss, if you want to suggest a guest as well, we've never said that, but we'd be absolutely thrilled to hear of suggestions for guests as well. You can do so. Email us, info at therestispr.com or info at demozo.com you can also head to both of those websites therecipepr.com for all things the podcast demozo.com for all things the brilliant demozo are getting up to at the moment jackie's now back from florence so it's all systems go for demozo you can also follow us on x and i'm thrilled that cat mentioned earlier in the episode that we don't really know what to call retweeting anymore i've refused to call it re-xing i think it sounds ridiculous and, and slightly <laughs> troubling but if you would like to follow us on x you can do by going to at the recipe r capital t capital r capital i capital p r it really is that simple and you can also get in touch with us via linkedin jackie balls love also will respond to messages on that platform as well jackie same time again next week what do you reckon yes please thursdays i love thursdays recording on a thursday the energy's great we're nearly there team we're nearly there <laughs> it's almost saturday Thank you so much, Kat, once again. Listeners, thank you so much for joining us on the latest episode of The Rest is PR. But for now, from Kat, from Jackie, and from myself, take care of yourselves. It's bye for now. <laughs>